Hi, this is Carol, and you're listening to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. Joining us today is John Russell, a longtime friend of Analyze Asia, who has been coming onto the show since 2016. Welcome back, John. Hey, Carol. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, John is a technology reporter and editor who has been based in Southeast Asia for a long time. If I remember correctly, you were first with the Next Web and then with TechCrunch for about five years, right? Yep, that's right. So coming up to, I guess, almost ten years probably, <laughs> which is、uh, quite some time. Ten years in in Southeast Asia? No, I've been Southeast Asia for longer than ten years, but as a、uh, reporter, yeah, almost ten years. And since you last appeared on the show, you have left TechCrunch and joined the Ken. So, can you tell us a little bit more about the Ken and what is your new role there? That's right. So it's almost I think it's a year next week. So it's been quite some time already. So the Ken is a subscription media outlet. So it began in India four years ago. Essentially, what we do is we don't cover any of the day-to-day news that you that you'll see, sort of company announcements or other such things. We just publish feature-length stories, so I guess around the two thousand word mark, usually looking at all kinds of different things that are going on. So it could be about a news announcement that came out previously that maybe perhaps wasn't explained fully, or it could be about some trends or anything really that's sort of beyond the day-to-day news that you'll see. As a reporter, and we just publish one story per day. So the idea is, people sign up. We have one free story per week. For those who are paying readers, they get access to a story every day. And that's been going on in in India for about four years. And so when I joined the Ken one year ago, that was to launch a subscription in in Southeast Asia. And we did that in March, which was also when the COVID outbreak happened. So it was quite a challenging time to launch a media outlet, let alone one that was obviously paid. But yeah, we've been going for about three and a half months so far, and there's five of us based across different parts of Southeast Asia. So I'm in Thailand, have somebody in Singapore, Philippines, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And I know that you guys have been releasing some amazing, lengthy pieces on the topic which we're going to talk about today, which is the battle or the war、um, between GoJack and Grab. And I was just looking at your past appearances on Analyze Asia, and I realized that in both 2018 and in 2019, you came onto the show to discuss this ongoing、uh, battle between these two ride-hailing giants.、Um, you know, we covered Grab's. Acquisition of Uber Southeast Asia back in 2018, and then in 2019 we talked about GoJack's financing, which made it almost a decacorn last year, and how both of these companies were trying to establish themselves as super apps. But of course, another year has passed, and a lot of things have happened in 2020. So let's dive into it, and I guess start our annual chat on this topic of GoJack versus Grab. Yeah. It does seem to be the same. I mean, it's the same topic, but there's always so much going on, right? I mean, it's one that doesn't dance in any kind of way, right? Whether it's、uh, sort of Uber leaving, as you, as you say, the money pouring in, or I think this time the circumstances have changed quite some bit, right? Like nobody thought that, it, that we'd be in the position that we are now in terms of like where. The world is, and obviously, where these companies are too, right? So let's start from Gojek. Gojek's founder and former CEO Nadim Makarim has left the company in October 2019 to become the Minister of Education and Culture in Indonesia. That is quite an interesting move. 
you know, to leave a rising tech company that you founded to start a career in politics, essentially. That's definitely not something that I've seen in US or China tech spaces, I must admit. Was that move quite controversial? And how has his departure impacted Gojek thus far? Yeah, I think it's a very a unique thing to happen, right? I mean, we were scratching our heads to figure out if there's anything similar. And I, I guess there's probably when executives have been at a company for a long time, maybe they've been CEO, they've become president, you know, they're sort of on their way out, they've done that. But as you say, it's very rare for somebody in their 30s, right, who founded a business that's still in, in its early days to go. But I guess talking to a bunch of people, I mean, it seems like Nadim always had uh, an interest in going into politics. It's something that his family has background in. And I think that the general consensus is that, you know, as the founder of the business and the figurehead of the business, he's always going to have input into the company anyway, right? So even if he's not there on, on a day-to-day -day basis and he is doing something else, I think he's always in communication with the other co-founders. I think that his influence is always going to sort of be there. So I guess it's not as drastic maybe as it sort of sounds. But he definitely did stamp his image on the company in terms of who they hired, ideas they went after. A lot of things came from him. And so I think that now it's a bit different and the management setup is a bit more, how should we say, structured, I guess, right? Where decision-making is, from what I can tell, a bit more shared inside the company. Whereas I get the feeling that certainly in previous days, if the dean wanted to do something or hire somebody, then he could basically do it, right? So, I mean, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's hard, it's hard to know, but but I, I guess his his influence is kind of is is still there, and maybe the structure of the business has evolved to a place that it probably should be now. If they're you know, as you as you say, a ten billion dollar company, right? Do you think it's a positive impact that his move into politics has had on the company? I think it's probably still early to know, right? I mean, uh, it's only been six months plus probably. So it's kind of early days. But you can definitely see that there have been some changes, right? So in the last week or so, Gojek just rebranded their pan-regional business. So they used to have a different business unit in each country. They were branded separately for local consumers. They were also inside a separate app. But now Gojek has condensed all of that. They're using the Gojek name across all their countries and the same app. And I think that's something that you could definitely say appears to come from the new management team. So I guess their decision making after he's left is beginning to come to the fore now. But obviously, it's hard because I think the global pandemic has had an impact too. So it's hard to say what moves they'd have made if that hadn't happened. So what really is down to him not being there and what is down to them having to do certain things given you know, the state of the world at the moment. Understood. And you just mentioned that Gojak does have operations in, you know, other countries in Southeast Asia. And we know that they have been trying to expand to other countries in Southeast Asia for the past few years now, but that hasn't gone too well, has it? Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that uh, they have been facing in their expansion out of Indonesia while, you know, having to deal with competition from Grab in their own backyard? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so fascinating. I think when they raised money before it got really huge, so I think it was like three or four years ago, they hinted about expanding beyond Indonesia and into other parts of Southeast Asia, but they never actually did it. And I know that they talked about potentially doing some kind of payment play across the region, but it wasn't until Uber finally left the region that they did expand. And it seemed at the time like it was kind of late because you're going up against Grab, which essentially Grab and Uber's business, right, after they acquired the business. So it's a really tough time time to do what is hard anyway, right? Because to launch across 
different markets in Southeast Asia is really tough. You know, you're looking at countries that are very unique, different teams on the ground in each market, different approaches to each market, so on and so forth. So at the best of times, it's kind of tough. When you're doing it when the opposition has just swallowed Uber's business and already has its own business, that's even harder. So I think that, I mean, I I can't speak for everybody else, but certainly when they did go regional, I I never thought this was going to be a white knight to save us from, you know, Grab being the dominant player because Grab is the dominant player that their expansion hasn't really gone according to plan whatsoever, right? So we also, we've written about this as well, like shameless plug, but how they've not hit the ground running as they hoped that they would in Vietnam, where I think they've had ongoing leadership problems. They've they've changed the leadership team within their Vietnamese business at least three three times since they launched there. And then in Thailand, they just struggled to get market share. Really, they're not offering taxis; they're just doing bike taxis and food, and that's a really tough you know the margins on those products are very very low the competition is very high like thailand has four food delivery companies here so it's really tough to compete in that and then in the philippines they haven't even launched right so they are acquired a fintech business in the Philippines called coins.ph, which is a big deal, like around about 100 million US dollars for that deal. The idea being that it would be a good fulcrum to launch, they'd have a a wallet app that they could use, but they haven't managed to satisfy the government conditions to launch, right? So they still don't have a service in the Philippines, despite, you know, spending all this this cash on an acquisition. And then in in Singapore, I, I think it's Obviously, it's a small market where Grab is dominant and there's a a load of taxi companies too. So I think that they've also found it very, very hard there. So, I mean, why are they doing this? It's a good question. Uh, I I think some of it was about ambition. And I think if you're, when they've been raising cash and they just raised their latest round is, I think, 2 billion US dollars, you've got to have a growth story. And I think that part of that was not just being dominant at home, it was also being a regional player. So that, that's, I think, one reason. And I think the second one is also because they wanted to be a bit more of a pain to grab. So grab is coming over to Indonesia. It's doing a lot of work in Indonesia. SoftBank is pledging to sort of help build the, the new capital city in the country. They're getting involved with the government. They're really pushing as, as hard as they can. And I think that part of Gojek's counter was, can we be a pain in, in some countries? Can we come in, in, into some markets and gain market share or at least force Grab to burn cash or redirect resources to these other places? It's not clear how well that's gone. I mean, certainly anecdotally in Thailand, where I live, the local Gojek brand is not particularly popular. So yeah, I, I mean, to, to me, it doesn't really make sense. It wouldn't be a big shock if they did, you know, exit some of these countries that they're in. Understood. And and you just mentioned their uh, recent fundraising. And uh, it seems like they are doing pretty well on the fundraising front, right? Have they officially joined the Decacorn Club now in 2020? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I mean, they've always been very, very close, right? But I, I think the more interesting thing is like who they've been raising from. And I think, you know, Facebook and PayPal are the recent investors that have come in. I think there's a lot that they can do with those companies yeah. on the payment side. Initially, Indonesia is, is the focus, but you know potentially there's things that they could do outside of the country and other parts of Southeast Asia too. I read in one of the Ken articles, it's both Facebook and PayPal's first investment in Southeast Asia. That's right. Yeah. And it, it, so Facebook has done a lot in India recently, but it, it wasn't the case in India, even as far as like two or three years ago, they hadn't done any deals in India. So it does look like having advanced their focus on India, now they're looking at 
Southeast Asia and Indonesia as the biggest country here is an obvious first port of call. And I know that Gojek boasts an impressive list of investors. It has, you know, Google, now also PayPal, Facebook, as well as a whole list of Chinese tech giants. What do you think some of the implications are as these U.S. companies invest in Gojek against Grab, pretty much? And I and I see that Grab's investments are mostly from Japan and from China. I think there's a lot of companies are looking to use these ride-hailing businesses as a sort of platform to do more in Southeast Asia. So, for example, PayPal. I think it's pretty well documented that PayPal held conversations with. Both companies, right? So they talk to Grab and they talk to Gojek because they basically want. I mean, the, I, I think PayPal has missed the boat in Southeast Asia, and I can say that as somebody who did use PayPal before I moved here. But it doesn't really work very well in the, in the region. It's not particularly popular, I don't think, compared to others. So I think they looking to work with them in some way uh, on the payment side, right? Whether that's cross-border, whether that's adding GoPay, which is Gojek's payment wallet, to their offering. So, for example, I think now if if you're buying on the internet. There's a merchant that takes PayPal. You can actually use GoPay to make that payment. So I think it's those kind of things, right? Trying to work with these dominant tech players or these tech players that have a big footprint to see what you can do. Because obviously, PayPal launching something by itself in Indonesia is going to be quite tough, especially at this point, right? And I think the same applies with Facebook. It's not a big secret that they've been pushing payments pretty hard. India, they've been held up in India for sort of two years plus. The government is not quite happy with the bunch of things that they're doing, so they're kind of on pause. There in Brazil, that they recently launched、uh, WhatsApp Pay, but again, it was rolled back by the regulators there because there, there's concerns around the data and how it's being used and so on. So I think partnering with someone like Gojek alleviates some of those concerns really because you're you're working with. A local player. I think there's been a lot of news coverage that this partnership will probably not be exclusive. So I think Facebook is looking to work with others on WhatsApp Pay. So it could be there's a deal with Grab also further down the line. Which I mean, it's a good question. What does that mean when you're an investor in Gojek but you work with Gojek and its arch nemesis company? So I think those questions at the moment we're not sure what's gonna what's gonna happen. But it's certainly an interesting period. And of course, given the current climate, we. Cannot avoid the question: What has been the impact of COVID nineteen thus far on both Grab and Gojek? At the most basic level, they both cut back, right? So they've both laid off staff. Top of my head, I think Grab was about five percent, and Gojek was about nine percent. But I think in general, they've had to streamline businesses, and so there's Gojek has closed down one of its lines, which was on demand services, so st- stuff like. A massage and other kinds of like salon and such services on demand has closed down. Even though apparently it was actually a profitable niche for them, and they had sort of fifty thousand plus merchants using the service. So I think that's interesting. I guess the growth, obviously, they didn't see the growth being in that area. So I think yeah, they've they've had to cut their cloth a little bit differently to perhaps how they had previously. I think at the end of last year, there was a general sense of needing to become a more sustainable business, especially for for Grab, right? Because SoftBank had a lot of problems with other businesses, WeWork being the, the, the most prominent one, and I think that there was a general understanding or, uh, within SoftBank companies, of which Grab is obviously one, that the days of burning cash forever were over. So Grab, at the end of last year, talking to people who've worked at Grab and who, and who still work there, there were some changes that they that they had made in terms of how they were spending, so less burning on pr- promotions and. 
subsidies, trying to be a little bit smarter about how they spent. Grab says that its ride hailing business is actually profitable or at least break even across the, the region. So I think they were moving forward this sort of plan to become financially a little bit more s- sustainable. And then obviously the pandemic hit. Again, I think it's pretty well known that obviously revenue from taxis and, and general t- transport died, right? Because everyone's staying in and nobody's going out and orders for food went up because everyone needs to be fed and, it, and it's a very easy way to get your food in without having to leave the, leave the house. But I think what's important about that is that the transport business had become reasonable for Grab, right? They weren't burning as much cash there as they had done previously. But food delivery wasn't at that stage. And I think it's still a very capital intensive business. There's lots of competition. There's still, I think, consumers that don't, that haven't switched to using food delivery apps as much as the companies would like. So so Grab's had to deal with that. They've had to refocus their finances because they weren't expecting food deliveries, which again, are unprofitable to spike as they have. And they weren't expecting transport, which is reasonably un- under control on a cash burn sense to sort of tr- drop. So I think that's one of the reasons. But obviously, the pandemic has, has hit every company. And I think everybody's taken a step back. And they've looked at their business in a sort of a doomsday s- s- scenario, which means, you know, h- how can we get through the next 12, 18 months plus? And so I think they would have done that anyway. But I think the fact that these unprofitable kind of areas became so big also caused them to refocus their finances too. And I have quite a few questions there. You know, I actually have friends who are impacted by the layoffs from one of the two companies. I won't say which one. Oh, really? Yeah, that's right. Have you taken a look at the approaches taken by both of these companies in the way that they, you know, did the layoffs? Yeah, I mean, so there were rumors about this for such a long time, which obviously both companies denied. But you know, we'd heard that they were letting people go in small numbers to uh, avoid like l- making it look like they've been laying people off. But it was funny because in the true sense of the fact that they often f- follow each other with sort of new features on other such things, their layoffs came a week apart, right? So <laughs> Grab was the first one and then Gojek was afterwards. So it did almost look like Gojek was saying, oh, I guess we should do it too, right? <laughs> but I'm sure that wasn't the case, you would hope anyway. From what I understand, they both did a pretty decent job of letting people go at that period, like ad- adopt some of the approaches that I guess others have done, like Airbnb, which is, you know, giving people access to their tools that like laptops and other such things that they've got through work and healthcare and and so on. So I think that that was fine. But I mean, to be honest with you, they're such big companies, they have so much cash, right? If they did it any other way, that would be that very, very poor. The harder part for layoffs has been the smaller companies that haven't got resources to offer, you know, people more sort of generous terms. So I think that they both did a good job, but I think that was expected and it should be that way. I wanted to ask you though, if your friends who were laid off, did they feel the same? Yeah, they didn't say anything negative. Yes, I would say so. Yeah, I think that's what I'd kind of heard. And you mentioned about the shift from ride hailing to food delivery. I know that Ken also did a piece on May 20 and Ping's Q1 earnings and also highlighted lessons that Gojek and Grab could learn from the Chinese super app. Can you share some of these lessons with us? May 21 is interesting because as you probably know, like they are an investor in Gojek. They've definitely become the role model for on-demand companies, right? Uber was that previously, but obviously Uber's kind of not worked out as I guess the company had hoped when it went to IPO, whereas Ubetuan's market cap, I'm not sure where it, where it is now, but it, it crossed 100 billion 
USD recently, which is what, like double, almost double what Uber is. And as you say, that they're, they're also profitable too. So I think there's a lot, a lot of lessons that Grab and Gojek are trying to take from them, particularly around the food business and how they work with SMEs and, and business customers. A lot of their revenue, sorry, comes from advertising. A lot of it is also around uh, tra- travel, which obviously is quite tough at the moment for Gojek and Grab. But I think there's definitely lessons that they're sort of trying to take going forward. And it'll be interesting as well, you know, if Umetuan does come to Southeast Asia. I mean, we've heard that they did try to invest in Gojek again as part of the round that just got closed, but they, they couldn't quite find agreement to do it. But they're also active in India too. So they, they've, they've backed one of, the, one of the big companies in India. So, you know, you would guess that they're either drawing information from these from these countries to that might help them at home or that they have ambitions to be active in those regions so i think there's there's quite a lot to watch there also the latest news that i can find about uh, meituan dmping's move into southeast asia was their partnership with chop is that uh a that's right that yeah you- they did a partnership with chop yeah so the a restaurant reviews uh, service one of our reporters reported that the CEO was in Indonesia for a month at the start of the year. And I think that was basically around trying to do another investment with Gojek. We don't know why that didn't come to fruition. That would be interesting to know. But they've been looking at other possible deals in Indonesia. And again, like with Facebook and with PayPal, I think Indonesia is the first market that the Chinese companies too are looking to get into when it comes to Southeast Asia. Makes sense, uh, given how many people also travel to Indonesia from China. Yeah, I just visited Bali in December, was talking to a lot of the locals about how they receive a lot of Chinese tourists uh, regularly. <laughs> and you did mention that it's been a pretty bad year, actually, for you know SoftBank, Vision Fund. You know, it took hits from WeWork from Uber, from Oyo. What are some of the downstream impacts to Grab? You, you mentioned a few already about them having to, you know, rein in their spending, etc. But uh, anything else is that you'd want to share? I guess Grab and Gojek had begun to get M&A happy in Southeast Asia and India too, right? I think Gojek has done over a dozen acquisitions and Grab might be pushing four, five or six. I forget the exact number but you know there's growing sense that they will buy companies in southeast asia and that that is a potential exit for a lot of founders and investors and i think that's that's a big deal because the region hasn't yet got to the same kind of scale as say india or china or america in terms of companies coming in actually buying up local companies. And obviously like, that's a big deal because investors need that return. So even though there wasn't anything like earth shutteringly huge, there was no like flip cart deal or any, anything like, like that. But there had been $50 million deals, $100 million deals that were beginning to come. And I think some people had begun to see this as one of the potential exits that would work in Southeast Asia. So obviously that impacted hugely, right? Because if Grab and, and Gojek are a bit more tight with their cash, they're less likely to go and buy other companies. Although that said, there might be opportunities to buy them given the sort of conditions that we have at this moment. But obviously those deals aren't going to be particularly, you would imagine they wouldn't be particularly great financially for the companies. You'd imagine that they'd be more likely to buy distressed assets or companies that aren't performing rather than companies that are sort of at their top of their game. So I think that's an impact on the region that maybe wasn't huge yet, but it was certainly on its way to being something. It's a more general reminder of the mortality, I guess, of, of companies, right? 
if even Grab and Gojek have had to cut staff and close you know, certain services that they were operating, then I think everybody needs to take a step back and you know assess their businesses. But I, I think most companies have already have already done that anyway because they haven't had any any other choice really. We talk a lot about you know their battlefronts on the ride hailing front. We talked a little bit about、uh, food delivery. Can you talk a little bit more about payments? You know what are each side doing when it comes to payments, and are there any fierce competition、uh, between the two of them? I mean, that's like a question that we could do for an hour, right? That's <laughs> right. <laughs> sure, there's a lot going on. Again, it's mostly Indonesia is is the focal point for this, and I think that's not just because of the size of the market. It's because the government has been involved in digital tr- transformation, right? So they're trying to push these policies that will bring some of the processes that are happening in the in the Country to the digital era, and I don't think. I mean, obviously, Singapore ha- has done that for some time, but there's not really any other country in in Southeast Asia that at that stage, particularly with the government being、uh, involved, right? So I think that's one factor. Gojek has its GoPay service in Indonesia, and then Grab had tried to run its own similar payment service, but that wasn't a licensed、uh, product; it didn't have the right licenses. So Grab had to sort of switch gears a bit, and they invested in a company called Ovo, which is like a payments business in Indonesia. So also T- Tokopedia, another big company in Indonesia, is also an investor in Ovo too. But I mean, essentially, Grab is very close to Ovo. So the former head of Grab's payments business. Is actually the CEO of Ovo. He moved over from Grab to run Ovo, and essentially, yeah, they will use Ovo as their payments business, right? So, I mean, I've heard it. It's a somewhat strained relationship because it's a needs must. Grab needs a local payment company. It, it can't op- operate its. Own so Ovo is is the sort of proxy that it's using, and then Ovo is in a protracted merger with another wallet service called called Adana, which actually used to be the BlackBerry business in Indonesia. <laughs> so it's quite convoluted, but essentially Alibaba and Financial is an investor in this Adana business. So when Ovo and Adana merge, which apparently, according to media reports, is going to be soon, you'll have this entity that includes Grab, Tokopedia, and Alibaba as investors, and then you're up against GoPay, which obviously is backed by, as we've mentioned, Facebook, which is planning to launch WhatsApp Pay in Indonesia, and also PayPal. There's quite a lot of companies now that are sort of gathering, but behind a couple of payments businesses. So it gets quite fa- fascinating at, at this point, right? And I think once the Ovo deal goes through, you'll see like you know you, the competition is going to get even more fierce, which is kind of interesting. But I think outside of Indonesia, it's a lot harder to call. And、uh, even though obviously Grab is present in eight countries and Gojek has four, they don't really have particularly strong payments business outside of Indonesia at this point. But I'm quite convinced that either, well, depending on on how the pandemic goes, but there'll be a focus on sort of countries like the Philippines and Thailand and Vietnam, where there's obviously huge consumer base and payments hasn't really gone di- digital yet. So there's an opportunity to make that change happen. Do you think their work will just remain in you know payment? Processing for the services that they offer, you know, for ride hailing, for food delivery, paying for for these services, or it will go beyond just that. For example, I'm looking at my Didi app. It also actually offers financial services, from you know taking loans to insurance to all sorts of payment-related or finance-related services that is completely separate from their ride-hailing business. Yeah, I think that's the route that they're all trying to take. Right, they want to 
emulate that approach. It, again, it's Indonesia focused at this point because that's just where there are more people and two, like the market is more attuned to this kind of services. That's the goal, right? Particularly Grab wants to be in the six core markets in Southeast Asia and it wants to offer services beyond just payment, right? So insurance, loans, other kinds of financial services. They've applied for a digital banking license in Singapore. They have a JV with a Zongan, right? One of the Chinese insurers is uh, they have a yes that's right they have a they have a, a JV which is I don't think it's up and running yet but that's a digital insurance play they work with another one called Chubb I think at the moment it, it's kind of focused a bit more on the driver community that they have because there's money going in and out on those accounts and so they can gather the d- data to, to make those choices more easily but also too there are these are people who are already using grabs apps for some kind of financial purpose right i think convincing consumers is going to be a lot harder but i mean that's certainly the goal that grab has mm-hmm. as for gojek it's kind of harder because they don't have a strong position outside of indonesia at this at, the, at this point right so they could potentially work with facebook and with and with paypal but i mean even then like those two just having them as partners doesn't mean that you know Know, they're gonna they're gonna get traction in in other countries right i mean it, it certainly could help but if you're going to a market where there's already other services then that might not unseat those companies of course and we've been talking a lot about indonesia do you think you know the battle in indonesia will be decisive in winning the the entire southeast asian region for grab or for gojack if I knew the answer to that, I'd be working at one of those companies probably, <laughs> <laughs> or I'd be an analyst. I mean, a lot of people say, right, that you can't win Southeast Asia without winning Indonesia. I mean, at this point, it's too early to know because we don't have examples. So we're still in, in the early days of the sort of digital services ecosystem. But I mean, it certainly is the biggest prize, right? And you can just see that Grab over the last three to four years probably has really poured resources time, investment capital into Indonesia. That's been very, very clear for the last few years. They had a plan. I think it was Indonesia plan 2020, like that they launched a couple of years ago. And it was around about $1 billion invest in Indonesia. And very quickly, they increased that. I think, as I mentioned earlier, like SoftBank invested money on behalf of Grab. Or it was a bit confusing, but essentially like Grab and SoftBank agreed to put up money to finance the proposed new capital city in Indonesia. So you can tell like this is the kind of focus that Indonesia is, is getting from Grab. I think that's the crux of the rumors that they were having conversations about a merger deal were essentially all about Indonesia, right? like Gojek's footprint outside of Indonesia is tiny. And I don't think Grab would need to buy up those businesses or merge with them, right? It doesn't add anything to them, whereas Indonesia does. And I think interestingly, like as anecdotally, like from people who worked at Grab in the past have told me that they were very focused on getting the business profitable or break even, right? In other parts of the region. But in Indonesia, they had allowances to spend more because it was such a key place for them. Now, I don't know whether that means because they wanted to dominate the country or, or whether they wanted to just put Gojek into a position where they they felt they, that they had to sell their business. But it's clear that Grab is very set on doing as much as, much as it can to win. I think the bigger question is really is can Grab win the market or whether it requires the two companies to sort of, t- t- to sort of put their few to the side and, and to tie up right a merger deal. So Indonesia obviously is the focal point, but how does the fight end? I think that's the big question. And yeah, like I can't answer that. And I don't think 
anybody else can answer that because there's so many different variables and outcomes, right? But it's definitely interesting to watch two companies fight when sort of they're both very, very tired, right? By that, I mean that, you know, COVID has sort of sapped them of their power to spend like they had previously. So they have to sort of fight with smaller punches or more tactical punches. I think that's something that'll be interesting to see this year and probably early part of uh, 2021 too. Yeah. And that leads to my last question on this topic, which is what do you think will the key battleground be for for them in in 2021? Because, you know, 2020 is kind of just like a a write-off these days. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, the obvious answer is Indonesia, right? It's obvious for a reason. I do think that the Gojek either needs to get out of other countries or actually get serious about them, right? So I'm kind of interested to see in 2021 what happens. And like one question is, are they serious about being a regional company, right? Was this a thing that Unadim, who we mentioned earlier, like he left the company, he would oftentimes make decisions based on gut feeling. Was this one of his calls where he said, let's just expand? Or is there actually a strategic like angle to it and so i think like that's a question that will probably be answered potentially you know in 2020 but certainly by next year we'll know right and as i say my hunch is that they're going to exit these markets because it doesn't really make sense for them financially so the other thing yeah that's interesting is investors that are coming in right so we've already seen you know the who's who of the internet in so many ways right you've got 10 cent You've got Google, you've got JD, you've got Facebook and PayPal. I think there's going to be more and more of these companies coming in and and taking a position on either Grab and Gojek. And I think that's interesting because they want to be super apps, right? But they need some help doing that. And I think who you recruit is going to be very important to what you can do. So I'd imagine that Facebook and PayPal doing an investment in Gojek has opened up the potential for other companies in the US that maybe hadn't thought about doing deals in Southeast Asia to actually do those deals too. And that makes me look forward to our conversation in 2021. And now I want to shift gears a little bit. You've written a lot on media streaming companies, you know, as well. Companies like, I'm not sure if I'm saying this correctly, H-O-Q Hook uh, from Singapore and iFlix from Malaysia. COVID-19 unfortunately has led to Hook being shut down and iFlix being acquired by Tencent. What are some of the key learnings from Hook's downfall and iFlix acquisition? I mean, I think these companies have been like on the hook for some time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they've been, oh, that wasn't deliberate, but <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. I, I must say, I quite enjoy all of the names of these articles that you guys come up with. They're so witty. And the I, headlines. Just, I just, yeah, the headlines, sorry. I just I can't chuckled. take much much credit. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have an amazing team, an amazing desk team that helps to edit our stories. And the titles are really, they're probably the hardest thing about what we do, right? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the funniest part. I, I love it. Well, that's it. good to know. I'll pass that feedback on. They'll be, they'll be quite pleased. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, I mean, these, these companies, they've been living on borrow time for a long time to do streaming is insanely hard right especially in southeast asia where nobody is really paying for content in anything like the same way that they are in the us or europe or even over in china right i know the models are a bit different in china but at least people are actually paying so i, I think it's been really tough i think they didn't have a clear offering that was separate to what netflix does they basically at first before netflix was in southeast asia they basically used the netflix playbook right so they bought up hollywood content a little bit of local content they offered it at a cheaper price and then when Netflix came to the region, they sort of panicked. They bought up content from Southeast Asia and from Korea and Japan and went as 
a local angle, right? And when that didn't work, they began to do advertising. And when that didn't work, they ended up closing. So I, I think from the get-go, it's been tough. iFlix raised a lot of money from investors, I think $300 million. And I think as part of the, the process of raising money, as we said with Gojek, is that you have to show something for it. And I think that they forayed into the Middle East and into Africa and these kind of things that really just, you know, took their eye off the ball. They lost their focus. They became a little bit too big. And so in, in the last like year and a half, they've closed down those businesses and they've basically gone back to what they were before, which was like Southeast Asia's streaming company. So I think that was tough for Netflix. And it's not a good exit for them, right? They haven't you know, they raised $300 million, undisclosed exits don't don't tend to be great. Mm -hmm. And then they've also had some kind of interesting dynamics for the deal, which is, you know, there's a some kind of special vehicle that was created to hold the asset that was sold. There's lots of debts that they owe people to. There's a whole lot to get into. Again, like, could talk for hours on on this one, but essentially the model just doesn't really work in Southeast Asia if you're just doing Southeast Asia right. And I think the model doesn't work if you're raising venture capital because the exit expectation is too high. Now, Hook obviously was owned by Singtel, so you think to yourself that maybe they had some kind of a fighting chance, right? There's no investors that are seeking an exit. It's just, it's funded by a telco and they had content partners as founding investors too but that also went wrong because really Singtel was quite restrictive with what it allowed Hook to do who it allowed Hook to work with so on and so forth but I mean essentially the same thing right consumers don't really want to pay it's not clear what you're paying for it doesn't really work that's my very very brief <laughs> summary right I mean we've as you say we've written at least three stories on, on this stuff so there's there's a lot more to get into but I, th I think this is really hard I think it works best probably if you're a global player and you come into, into this region and you're prepared to lose money for a while and you're prepared to target like paying those who are the sort of top two or five percent who will who will pay like 10 bucks per month I think trying to make a business off of people paying a dollar here, a dollar there is going to be really, really hard. So I think, you know, Netflix, you've got Disney Plus coming into the region. HBO is here now. WeTV is the 10 cent business that's here. You've got Aichi. There's a whole bunch of companies that are not just in Southeast Asia. And those are the ones that I think have the best shot because they have greater amount of money to buy content. And they also have the cash to burn here, right? Whereas I feel like iFlix and Hook just didn't have the same luxuries that these guys have. Yeah, no, thank you for the brief answer to my question. And of course, our listeners can check out articles at the, the Ken if they want to learn more. And here I want to cue another um, article, which is the seven takeaways from COVID time digital winners and losers in Southeast Asia. Can you share some of these key takeaways from the COVID-19 pandemic? in Southeast Asia? I would say this is, this is a data story that we that we did recently. And we try to let the data tell the story, right? I mean, I know that sounds obvious, right? But it's easy to go into these stories and think like, oh, I, I want to take a look at this company and that company, how are they doing? So we just got the numbers for a bunch of different things. And I think I was quite surprised that TikTok was doing as well as it has done in Southeast Asia, right? I mean, obviously their ByteDance is going after international markets. India, they've just been blocked, but India right. was a big focus. The US obviously is a big focus. And I think it stands to reason that Southeast Asia is probably somewhere behind those two. And yeah, like the numbers that, that we looked at showed 
some crazy growth on the TikTok side. It also showed TikTok getting, closing the gap with a YouTube in Southeast Asia, which to me is, is really, I'm quite surprised because YouTube is so popular here. It's universally popular here. I actually wondered if the, the data was actually wrong at first because it didn't really seem to make any, any sense whatsoever. I do think that there is demand for shorter videos here, which TikTok is obviously serving. I think the pandemic actually they had across the region working with influencers, this kind of thing that got put on hold during the pandemic. But I think that's also boosted them because they've they've managed to find an audience of people who maybe wouldn't have got into the app, but they've been stuck at home all, all day and they're spending like X hours on the, on the internet and they've obviously found the app and, they, and they've got into it. So I think there's been good bits and, and bad bits for TikTok. But yeah, what other findings to me was, I mean, they're, they're all interesting, right? Obviously, <laughs> we wouldn't have done the story <laughs> otherwise. The TikTok thing was a really big shock. I think games, obviously, are universally popular. And again, Facebook just continues to own Southeast Asia. So all of its apps are insanely popular. You know, whether it's the, the Facebook, the social network, whether it's Facebook Messenger, the messaging app, whether it's WhatsApp, even Facebook Lite and the Lite version of Facebook Messenger too are just, they're all inside the top 25 most downloaded apps during the first half of the year. So, I mean, you can say what you like about Facebook. And personally, I, I'm not, I don't have an account there. Any people, obviously, there's a lot, a lot of controversy around the type of content that goes in, in, into, into Facebook, how they manage user content and so on and so forth. But the fact is like they're still insanely popular here. They're used by so many people. It's uh, crazy. Uh, personally, I must say that I'm not surprised at TikTok's growth given how much time I've spent on the app just uh, during pandemic. And I, I'm one of those people that would not have gone on it yeah, had I not been stuck at home for weeks on end. And that is all the time and all the questions we have for today's show and thank you so much for coming on again john and i know that many of our listeners would love to learn more about what the can has to offer and read more of your coverage if they don't already so how can they go about doing that and also do you offer a newsletter yep so just go to the ken.com and it should direct you to our southeast asia sub if you sign up for an, for an account and we have a bunch of free stories that we've already published and we publish one free to read story per week so you can get into it that way or you can just take the plunge and buy a sub which gets you access to all of our stories i have a newsletter that i try to send out every week i haven't been so great recently but it's called uh, asia tech review so just asiatechreview.com those are the things to plug shamelessly on my side before i let you go last question can you recommend a book, a movie, a podcast, or anything that has recently made an impact to your work or personal life? Yeah, this is the hardest question that you asked me. <laughs> this is one that I agonized over before. So I actually read the Instagram book recently by Sarah Fryer, Bloomberg reporter, which I can recommend. Even though it's not about Southeast Asia, it's a pretty interesting insight into how Facebook operates post-acquisition of Instagram. So it's called No Filter, the Inside Story of Instagram. But I'm sure most of your readers have probably already checked it out by this point. But if they haven't, then I definitely recommend it. Cool. And last but not least, how can my audience find you? I'm on Twitter. I'm probably a bit too active there, but it's just my name, 
at John Russell. I've been taking a little bit of a break from Twitter, but uh, I will get back to it. And you will be able to find Analyze Asia on Twitter as well. And that is at Analyze Asia, Analyze with an S. And of course, you can find all of our episodes available on all podcasting platforms like uh, iTunes Podcasts, as well as SoundCloud, Spotify, etc. You name it. And again, thank you so much for coming on the show, John. And we will see you next time. Real pleasure. Thank you so much.